0: You know, one of the uh, most common nightmares of adults in our society is the dream that you are back in school and you're taking a test that you're absolutely, totally unprepared for. I am sure that uh, most of you, not all of you, have had this dream before. You're sitting there and everyone around you is frantically riding away and you're thinking, I don't even know what class this is. Or you are uh, uh, sitting there and everyone's filling in all the answers and you realize that you haven't even bought the text, that uh, you've missed every one of the classes. And I think one of the reasons for some of us that this dream is so vivid is that it so closely parallels our actual school experience. <laughs> I know uh, for myself that I had a very regular and systematic uh, program of study regularly, twice a quarter, right before midterms and right before finals, I would study like crazy and walk into the test trying to keep my head perfectly balanced so that nothing fell out before I got to my seat and open the blue book and just dump it all in. I think one of the reasons that this dream is uh, so popular, this nightmare is so common that we go into a test totally unprepared is that uh, sometimes life seems like a test that we've had no chance to prepare for. And we don't even know what class we're in. We're presented with situations that we never imagined, and we feel like somehow we're being graded on how well we do. Well, in some senses, this is true. To some degree, life is a test, and we've never had the chance to prepare. But passages like the one we're going to be looking at this morning give us some understanding. They, 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 they prepare us for the test of life. We are in Judges 3. This is a very interesting passage. Uh, I think somewhat entertaining, somewhat gross. Yeah, the, the chapter starts with an explanation of the test that Israel was facing. So let's just start with the first six verses. Says now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords or tyrants of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites. And they took their daughters for them as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. We're told that God intentionally and specifically left these people in and around Israel for two reasons. To test them and to teach them. God had a, a plan of what he wanted to accomplish. The list in 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 verse three is really a list of all of the peoples that were around Israel, the surrounding nations, the Philistines on the west, and all the way up the, the Sidonians were the Phoenicians in the in the northwest and around the top the some of the uh, people, the Syrian people and the Lebanese people. Those are the lists that are the people that were surrounding Israel. Well, verse 5 isn't just a repetition of that list. Verse 5 are the people who were among, within Israel. See, Israel lived largely in the highlands, in the foothills. And a lot of these people still had cities down in the plains. These were people who had, had towns and villages that were sprinkled among the Israelites. So there were people around them. There were people in the midst of them. And again, we're told that these nations were there for a test and to teach them. According to verse 4, the test was to see if they would obey Yahweh, if they would listen, literally, to the words that he spoke through Moses. And what God wanted to teach them was how to fight battles. I find it interesting that God goes straight to the heart of the problem. He doesn't uh, skirt around. He doesn't shy away from the real issues. He goes right after their area of weakness. In, in the last couple of chapters in the introduction, we saw that these people, their weakness was their tendency to begin to follow the gods of the people around them. God had told them to drive all these people out. And it was their failure to do that that had put them in the bad situation that they, they were in. But see, God doesn't design some Mickey Mouse tests that they will for sure pass he goes straight for that one because he knows that's where their weakness is. So God comes straight at their weakness. He wants them to see themselves. He wants them to see their need. He knows that's where they're vulnerable. So that's the, the area in which he wants them to face themselves. You see Jesus doing the same thing like, uh, like with the rich young ruler. You know Jesus doesn't skirt the issue with him. He doesn't say, well, this guy's got his act pretty well together. Most area, he's right on. In fact, he's better than just about anybody else I've run into, so let's just leave well enough alone. Now, he cuts straight to this guy's issues. He tells the guy, he says, if you want to follow me, give away everything you own and follow me. That was the rich young ruler's test. Well, why? Because that was the rich young ruler's weakness. That was where he was vulnerable. Well, why did Jesus give him a test that he knew that the guy was going to fail? Well, the rich young ruler didn't know. He didn't know he had a problem. He wasn't dealing with reality. He thought everything was fine because he he didn't lie too much. He gave a little to the poor. He said his prayers. But Jesus knew that he had never faced himself, never looked at his real weakness. His need for for God, his need for a savior. He had never faced the fact that his God was money rather than God. But as he turned and walked away from Jesus, he could no longer pretend. He could no longer fool himself. He had to face reality. Jesus knew what was going on all along. It's just the rich young ruler needed to know that too. He needed to see what was really happening. God is going to be coming straight at you. Not because He wants to trap you. Not because He wants to, uh, to, to mess you up. But because He wants you to see what's really in your heart, what's really in your life. You know, like the uh, people of Israel, we are surrounded by the world. Now, there are people out there that follow other gods. They follow other philosophies that seem so easy and, and seem to provide a way for you to save yourself. Now, they follow... Success. Many of them even sacrificing their children to this god. They follow uh, materialism and pleasure. They follow the quest for that perfect man, and that perfect woman. And what we find is our hearts begin to stir. We start thinking that stuff looks awfully good. That stuff is really what I long for. What I really want. And 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 we see how attractive. What they, what they seem to be getting is. You know, in our saner moments, we want to, to isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from all this influence out there, to pull ourselves into a Christian cocoon. But God won't let us. Why? Well, not because He wants to, again, put us in a place where we'll be trapped. But He wants us to see ourselves as we are, to see our needs, to see our hurts, our woundedness, our weaknesses. Again, not so that we'll seek the answers to these things out here, but so we will turn to Him and find that we have a God of compassion. A God who longs to heal and to satisfy. God's tests are diagnostic. Until a man knows that he's sick, he won't look for a doctor. Until we see ourselves as we actually are, see our needs, see our weaknesses, We'll continue to just play the game and avoid facing the painful realities of who we are, of what we really long for, what we really need. And we'll never see healing. We'll never experience the satisfaction, the peace that God longs to give. We'll never really see Him. And that's why God comes straight at us. And the Canaanites are not only out there They were among as well. They're inside. You see, we not only face the the, the pull from the world, we face the battle with the flesh. Remember, what God wanted to teach them was how to fight battles. What God wants to teach us is spiritual warfare. We seem to have an inexhaustible ability to point out there to the problems and, and, and the corruption out there. In fact, we're really ready to blame our own issues on what's going on out there. We blame our own selfishness and hatefulness on the fact that we've got this relative who is so annoying. This spouse that is so demanding. This child that's so disobedient. This boss that is so manipulative. This checkbook that is so empty. (laughs) But we've got to wake up. We're missing the point. This is a test. It's a test to show us what's really going on inside of us. Again, it's not to trap us. It's so that we can see that there's something that needs dealing with. Theoretically, we should be able to act loving and and kindly, patiently, self-controlled, no matter what the provocation. And to the degree that we cannot, we have to face the fact that we've got something to learn. And what God wants to teach us is spiritual warfare. We have an opportunity to learn how to pray. How to use prayer. We have an opportunity to, to, to see how truth really will set us free. To see how faith will help us deal with, with the, resentment, uh, the, the, thoughts, the resentful thoughts, the, the depreciating thoughts that, that roll around in our heads. We have the opportunity to see how our knowledge of God's love for us, our salvation, the fact that we're in Christ, will, will protect us and, and keep us from losing our head in the midst of the battle. You see, it's not so much a test of our own strength, and wisdom and ability as much as it is as an opportunity to learn specifically how to rely on God in any situation how specifically to turn to him and the resources that he provides to save us to rescue us so that we can see him we can see his power the goal is to see his glory to experience his power his rescue the goal again is to see him Well, let's take a look at the first of the judges that we have. We have three guys that we're going to look at this morning. The first one is Othniel, verse 7. It says, And the sons of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of cushan Roshethayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served cushan Roshethayim for eight years. There's a pattern that we see here for the first time and we will see over and over again through the whole book of Judges. See, it started with the people of Israel start doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They started to compromise. They started to do things they knew weren't right. They knew God didn't really want them doing. They began to rationalize. Well, it's little stuff. It's no big deal. Besides, the people around us, they're doing it and it looks... They're doing okay. In fact, they're doing great. They're doing better than we are. Besides, you know, this is the 14th century B.C. Things have changed since when Moses was telling us what to do. Again, they begin to rationalize. And that set them up for the next step. The next step was that they forgot God. Now, I don't think that means that suddenly they thought there is no God or they had no idea that God was there. No, they knew God was there. They knew God uh, even had some claims on their life. In fact, they probably considered themselves good Christians. But what they forgot was to listen to Him. They no longer cared what He thought, what He said. They no longer uh, involved Him. They no longer listened to Him in their daily lives. He became a distant and vague reality rather than their personal Lord. And they began to follow other gods. They began to look around to go after uh, after that uh, success, go after money, go after recreation, go after romance, go after the perfect family. They started pursuing everything else that the people around them were pursuing. And the result of this progression of sin, of forgetting God, of, uh, of pursuing other things was they found themselves, with the true God, angry at them. You see, it really ticks God off to see us destroying ourselves like that. He loves us too much to just stand mildly by while we trash our lives. And he comes after us. Like George MacDonald said, God becomes against us for ourselves. You see, he loves us enough to oppose us. It's tough love. And often the way that love is manifest, the way his anger is manifest, is that he will allow us to be enslaved to the thing that we are pursuing. We become enslaved to that quest for success or for money. We become enslaved to that unhealthy sexual relationship. We become enslaved to that philosophy and it tears us apart. You see, that's that's the problem. That's what happens. In Israel's case, they became enslaved to the people whose gods they were following. In this specific case, it was they became enslaved to Kushan Reshathayim. I realize this is not his real name. What that literally means is Kushan the Doubly Wicked, or Double Trouble Kushan. I think what they were doing was taking his name and twisting it a little, using something that sounded like his name to kind of take a jab at him. I heard on the radio the other day someone refer to Saddam Insane instead of Saddam Hussein. It's the same kind of thing. Taking the name, twisting it a little just to make a jab, just to make a poke. And incidentally, uh, interesting enough, uh, Kushan Roshathayim was the king of Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. One of the things that uh, I'd like you to see, though, in this passage is that God retains control of the situation. It was he who sold Israel into the hands of Kushan Roshethayim. And in the next story, in verse 12, it says, The Lord strengthened Eglon against Israel. The Lord did it. He is an absolute control. God always retains control over international events, over what's going on in the international scene. In a time of international crisis like we find ourselves right now, this can be a comfort to know God is in control. But it's also, I think, very sobering that we realize that wars are not decided on the basis of superior training or superior weaponry. Wars are decided on the basis of God's design, His plan for history. I, unfortunately, have heard a lot of smugness, even among Christians, you know, that we can beat those Iraqis. And we shouldn't be smug. We should be praying with all our hearts that God will spare us from a war in which many will die and many will be lost forever. And if it does come to war, we don't know whether God will use this to humble us, to bring our wicked nation into repentance. So we should never be smug it wasn't the 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 russians that stopped the germans at borodino it was an early winter see god always retains control his sovereign is his sovereignty is always there we should never become smug we should always pray and pray fervently anyway verse 9 when the sons of israel cried to the lord the lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of israel to deliver them you know, this is all that God was waiting for. That's all he wanted. He wanted them to turn away from these gods that were destroying them, to realize their need, and to come to him with it. To say, God, please, help us. That's what he wanted. He longed to give, he longed to bless, and he was just waiting for the chance. Othniel, the son of Kinez, Caleb's younger brother. Okay, this was Caleb's nephew. Othniel was Caleb's nephew. And he was also Caleb's son-in-law. Back in, in the first chapter, we see Othniel come in there. And he takes a city, off uh, uh, sephir He does that for Caleb. And so Caleb gives him his daughter to marry as a reward. Othniel was faithful with taking a city. Now Othniel is challenged with taking a nation. God always rewards our faithfulness with greater and greater victory. He uses us when we are available. Verse eleven or 10, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Kushan Reshethayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, so that he prevailed over Kushan Reshethayim. Then the land had rest for forty years. And Othniel, the son of Kinez, died. The Lord gave victory. Again, the Lord is sovereign. He is in control. He is the key. Let me make one more point before we go on to the next hero. Notice that the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, that that's the critical element that explains his success. We're not even told how he fought the war, what he did, what his strategy was, how many men he had, any of that stuff, because that really as interesting as it might be, and in other occasions we're told this this information, our, our editor, Prophet, is, is telling us, no, the essential element was that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And we see the same thing happening with some of the uh, the other guys. With, uh, with Gideon, we are told, the Spirit took possession of Gideon. With Samson, it says, the Spirit rushed upon Samson. With Jephthah, It says, the spirit came upon Jephthah. Now, it wasn't because of these guys' intelligence. It wasn't because of their courage, their strength, their moral integrity. In fact, when we're given enough of the story to really see what kind of guys these guys are, we're disappointed at how weak and how foolish they really were. In fact, in other books, like in Isaiah... We read about the Spirit of the Lord coming on unbelievers, people who don't even belong to God, like like Cyrus, the king of Persia, or Balaam, who was a wicked prophet who in no way belonged to the Lord. The Spirit of God uses whomever He chooses to accomplish His purposes. And it doesn't say anything about that person's character. It doesn't say anything about uh, that, that... It doesn't... Uh, uh, say that it approves of that person's lifestyle or conduct. It doesn't even say whether or not that person belongs to the Lord. It's important for us to distinguish between the filling and the empowering by the Spirit and the indwelling and, and the fruit of the Spirit. You see, again, the Spirit of God gives whatever gifts and abilities and talents to whomever He chooses but he comes to live in his own. And there he begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Because someone preaches with authority and power, and, and thousands come to Christ through them, does not mean that person is spiritually, is spiritually mature. Because someone works miracles doesn't mean that person is walking with God. Those are not the index. The index of their relationship with God, the fact that they are living a life of dependence on God, is not the power of their gifts. Again, the gifts are given by God to accomplish a purpose. The index of their their relationship with God is the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that's manifest in their lives. The things the Holy Spirit, the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. It's important to make that distinction, even in our own lives. Because you're leading a growth group, because you're teaching a Sunday school class, because you're witnessing at work, because you're uh, casting out demons or working miracles, does not mean everything's okay between you and God. Those of us who are in ministry have to especially guard against that. God uses us so we think, hey, this is great. I must be doing okay when that may or may not be true. What really is the index? Is my walking with God? Am I close to God? Am I seeing Him produce the fruit in my life? That's that's the index. Jesus says in the indi- in the last days, many will come to Him and say, "Lord, Lord, did we not <clears throat> did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons in Your name and in Your name perform many miracles?" And Jesus will say to them in that day, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness." Yeah, He says, "I never." Knew you? That's the critical element. Do we know him? Are we getting to know him? Are we revealing ourselves to him and letting him reveal himself to us? Well, anyway, let's take a look at Ehud. This is the one those of you who are in growth groups have been looking forward to. Uh, This is kind of a gross story. This is a story that your kids would be interested to hear, but you're not sure you want them to. This is definitely PG, parental discretion advised, because there is a lot of violence in it and a lot of uh, gross elements. But I, I think we can uh, let's just read through it, looking at it verse by verse, and I'll make comments as we go, starting with verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. I think that's shorthand for the whole process we talked about. They did evil, they forgot God. They began to follow other gods and they incurred God's wrath, his anger. <clears throat> they, be, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon. Again, we see his sovereignty. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek. And he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. <clears throat> Excuse <me>. that's, <clears throat> that's Jericho. They possessed the city of the palm trees, and the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Moab, the king of Moab went and gathered all of these bad guys with him, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Amalekites. These were all bad news people throughout the history of Israel. And interesting enough, they were all the product of Israel's sin, of people within God's chosen people of their sin. You see, life gets real complex and real confusing because we're not only dealing with our own sins. We're dealing with the sins that we've inherited in our culture, that we've inherited from our parents and their parents. Moab and the Amorites were products. Back in Genesis, we're told the story of where they come from. Two of Lot's daughters wanted to have children, so they got their father, Lot, drunk, and each of them slept with him. And the oldest daughter had Moab. The next daughter had the father of the Amorites. And the Amalekites, they are, are, are one of Esau's descendants. Esau who sold his birthright. Again, these people, the Israelites, were dealing with the difficulty of the situation be, partly because of generations of sin, of inheriting a situation that had been already profoundly affected by sin. And you may be dealing with a life that is so confusing and so complex. Because you're not only dealing with your own issues, you're dealing with your your parents' sins and their parents' sins and the sins that we've inherited in this culture. But the message of this story is that God can rescue even in the midst of this. That God can rescue even when it gets complex, even when it gets confusing. Verse 15, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Again, God is ready. His heart is there to save. He was looking for the chance. It just took these guys 18 years to be honest with themselves, to face into themselves, to look at where their life was going, how miserable they had become. It took them 18 years to face God honestly. And so God raised up their, their next hero. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, Our writer points out that this guy is left-handed, I think, for a couple reasons. First of all, later on in the story, it helps explain how he smuggled a dagger into the throne room to kill Eglon. But I think there is also more to it. I think there's something about who Ehud was and how he was viewed by by society of that day. You see, all the way through the ancient world, a left-handed person was viewed as defective not only physically defective, but morally defective. Our word sinister, which means, you know, somehow subtly evil, dangerous, comes from the Latin word sinister, which simply plainly means left handed. Even today in, in the Middle East, the left hand stands for uncleanliness. You don't offer your left hand to an Arab. You don't touch an Arab with your left hand. It's an insult. I think it's ironic that this guy was a Benjamite and it's pointed out that he's a Benjamite because Benjamin means son of my right hand. Well, what's the point of this? I mean, what's the significance of the fact that that he was left-handed? I think part of the significance is the fact that God can use you no matter how people look at you, no matter what their opinion of you is. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're from the wrong social strata. You don't have that that college degree or maybe even a high school diploma. The color of your skin doesn't match theirs. You're of the wrong sex. It doesn't matter how people view you. God can use you to accomplish His purposes. We see the same thing in the next hero, the last guy we're going to look at, Shamgar. Shamgar is not an Israelite name. His father was a worshiper of the Canaanite goddess Anath. See, this would have been enough to keep this guy out of the country club. Probably even out of the local tavern. But God was still able to use him to accomplish his purposes, to free Israel. And no matter what people think of you, no matter who you are, God can use you to accomplish his purposes. If you're available, give yourself to him. Verse 16, he says, And he had made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length. Now, a cubit, this is a short cubit. It's a word that uses the diminutive. It's a distance from your elbow to your knuckles. So that's about how long the sword was, a little 14-inch sword. That was a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh, under his coat, probably on the inside of his thigh, so nobody could see it, so they wouldn't know he was smuggling it in. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man he wants to make sure we catch that because it's a very fat man this comes out later in the story you see why it's kind of gross but he's a very fat man discovered that his real name was Eglon the hut very fat man anyway he says and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute But he himself turned back from the idols, which were at Gilgal. And he said, I have have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that is the king, said, keep silence. He told everybody, get out of here. Take a hike. And all who attended him uh, left him. See, Ehud took the guys that came with him to carry the tribute. The tribute was probably grain and fruit and other things that were brought to lay before Eglon. Ehud took those guys out as far as Gilgal, which was just north of Jericho, and, as soon, and But it was probably the edge of Eglon's territory. So as soon as they crossed that, as soon as they were safe, he went back himself and said, Oh, yeah, I've got a secret for you, Eglon. So Eglon got rid of everybody. He said, Okay, okay, what's the secret? And Ehud came to him. And he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And he had said, I have a message from God for you. And he, that's Eglon, arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly. And the handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the whole thing. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. As Brian Fisher said, that when Ehud had a message to get across, he really knew how to stick it to you. And that Eglon got the point. In fact, he was so affected by the message that he spilled his guts in reply. You can blame Brian for those. I stole those from him. Verse 23, then Ehud went out to the vestibule and shut the doors of the rift chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked and behold, the doors of the rift chamber were locked. And they said, well, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious, literally until they were embarrassed. But behold, he did not open the doors of the rift chamber. Therefore, They took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now he had escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So we don't know if this was a, something they planned in advance, but as soon as he made his escape past the idols again, he started blowing the trumpet, calling everybody down, and all the, the people of Ephraim, all the soldiers, all the men, came running with their bows and arrows and their clubs and their their axes and their swords and spears. And what they did was they immediately went down and took the crossing points of the Jordan River so that any reinforce reinforcements coming from Moab could be wiped out as they're trying to wade through the, 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 the water, as they're bogged down, getting through the Jordan. The Israelites could kill them. And all of the, the, the Moabites escaping from Jericho, trying to get back to Moab, again, as they went into the river, they would be vulnerable and open to, to the slaughter. And they killed 10,000 men. And God, again rescued his people. And this is one of those stories that we're just given without comment. We don't really know exactly how to take what had did. We don't really have uh, any indication that, that the Bible condones assassination and treachery. We're just given the story exactly like it happened. I think we're given an awful lot of detail because uh, apparently had wrote down what happened. He's the only one that would have known this information. But we're given all the details of what happened here, of how God used this event to save his people. Well, let's take another quick look at our, our last hero, Shamgar, and then try to figure out what's the point of it all. Verse 31. And after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. We also we already I mean noticed that that uh, Shamgar was a foreign name. He was the son of a worshiper of a foreign god Anath. That he uh, had that obstacle to overcome, but we're also told that he killed all these 600 Philistines. He freed the people of Israel using an ox goad, It's a stick that's about eight foot long with sharp point it's used to kind of encourage cattle on their way. See, the Philistines had the practice, when they subjugated a people, they would confiscate all the weapons and they would kill all the metalsmiths. They would not allow people to be trained as metalsmiths so that no one could make weapons. And that's the way they kept people oppressed. Well, not only was Shamgar a foreigner, he was ill-equipped for the job God called him to do. Yet God accomplished his purposes using Shamgar and a stick. Now, you may feel ill-equipped for the things that God is calling you to do. You may feel ill-equipped for Him to use you at all. Now, you may feel like you don't have the intellectual equipment, or you've never been to Bible college, or you don't even own an NIV study Bible. But God can use you. What, again, the issue at hand is His power, His ability, not your equipment. It's good and it's helpful and healthy to grow in, in, in our knowledge and, and our skill. But the critical issue is God and His ability to use you. Use whatever He makes available to you. Use whatever is at hand and see His power, see His greatness, see His goodness. By the best illustration of this that I can see is, is the way the gospel has survived behind the Iron Curtain. There are people back there that couldn't get their hands on a Bible. None of the pastors received any training. All of the seminaries were shut down. And we worried from on this side of the curtain, what's happening to the gospel? And what we discover is that God accomplished his purposes. Regardless of their lack of training and lack of resources and no overhead projectors and no you know, uh, textbooks and all the stuff that we enjoy, in spite of their lack... And these things would have been valuable for them to have. But in spite of that lack, God has advanced his church, has spread his kingdom. And we're just now getting a glimpse of it. And we marvel at what an awesome God we serve. All right, well, what's the point of all of these stories? Is this a story on uh, obesity, as some might suggest? Is this, uh, you know, these stories are all a little bit weird. What do we get out of these? What's the point of it? Well, let me read a couple of, of verses. Just listen. Psalm 34. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. In Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father who has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You see, these people messed up. They got themselves in a whole lot of hurt. But when they cried out to God, he was ready. He was looking for the chance to bless, to rescue, to give to them. That's his heart. That's his desire. See, we do the same thing. We begin to make compromise. We begin to forget our God. We begin to follow these other things that are out there that are so attractive. We start to pursue these things. And we find ourselves miserable, oppressed. But we don't have to wait eight years like the people did before Othniel or or 18 years like they did before Ehud. We already have the lesson spelled out for us. We already know that he is ready to rescue now. There's no point in waiting. There's no point in staying miserable, staying oppressed. Really, this is the test of life. This is what it's about. Will we learn the message of judges? And will we turn quickly to our God, who longs to deliver, who longs to save. Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. See, to some degree, it's a test of our common sense, of our intelligence. We know he longs to rescue. We know we need rescuing. Why wait? Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that we are slow to turn. That we we so often wait until we are absolutely miserable. Until we are absolutely oppressed. Until we've done damage to ourselves and those around us whom we love. And Lord, just open our eyes to this lesson. Help us to see life as a test, not a test to see how well we'll do, to see whether you're going to love us. You already love us. But a test to show us our need for you. Help us to be quick when we feel that dissatisfaction, when we feel that anger, when we feel that frustration, when we feel those those unmet longings to turn to you and to cry out because you're a God who longs to be gracious. You're a God who longs to save. Lord, just give us intelligence. Give us common sense. Give us wisdom to turn and cry out to you. Amen.